So this evening we have our good friend Tanisara, who's here visiting from South Africa by way of Tennessee. <laughs> she may be a little jet lagged, but she's here. And for those of you who haven't met Tanisara, um, um, let's see what to say about you this time. You know, I was thinking about when we first met, uh, which was um, probably about 16 years ago or so when I was in teacher training, and, uh, and Tanisara and her partner Kitty Saro came, and, and Jack invited them to come to the teacher training, which was at that point six people, and they came and visited and told us their story a little bit about how they'd, he, he'd been a monk for 15 years and Tanisara had been a nun, and they had um, connected in the monastery and um, in a very um, appropriate way, very appropriate. But I'm sorry, I know. I didn't mean to tell this, but and then they they ended up leaving so that they could be together, and they've been together ever since. And and then I've got to meet her again in uh, England at a teacher meeting, and that's when we really connect. I connected more with Kitty Sarah the first time, and. And we've been friends ever since and taught together. And when Kitty Sarah and Tanisara came here one time, um, uh, uh, the first time and taught, uh, at the end, Gail got up and said, well, and they talked about their teaching in South Africa where they'd been living. And at the end, Gail got up and said, well, can we be sister Sangha with you? And they were like, well, you know, they're very open, Kitty Sarantinos. They were like, well, sure, you know, why not? Nobody ever asked us to be, asked to be Sister Sangha before. And that's how we as a community became Sister Sangha with Kitty Sarah and Tanisara and the community in South Africa. And Tanisara was a monk, as I, uh, excuse me, a nun for 12 years with Ajahn Chah and with Ajahn Sumedho. Really, I think the one of the first four ordained Western nuns and um, uh, very devoted uh, to that practice. And then since then has been totally devoted to practice and teaching. And um, she and Kitty Sarah have done a lot of teaching in, the, in South Africa and also a lot of social work in South Africa. Been very involved in the AIDS epidemic in the part of South Africa where they live, which is uh, KwaZulu-Natal, and really initiated a, a, a model program, uh, a community-based program for working with the people affected by the AIDS epidemic. And we as a community have supported their work, um, both financially in a number of different ways, and then also with our friendship. And um, so it's always great to have you here. I'm really happy to have you here. And, uh, we'll go from here. And I'll let you speak for a while, whatever you want to say. Here, I'm going to give you two of these because I like to record them. Uh, good evening, everyone. Um, <clears throat> Well, I'm delighted uh, to be back here in this wonderful city of San Francisco and um, to be here at this time in 
what's been happening here this last week. And um, it's, I said, just said to Eugene, I, I don't actually know what to say tonight. And, I, and he said, well, never mind, you're with friends and family and we'll just maybe take some questions at some point. Um, and I, I think, I mean, I could say something about the Dharma, but I realized partly what's been happening um, for me during this week and also from um, transiting from Johannesburg through London, Tennessee to here in 10 days, which is a lot of worlds. Um, and then what's been happening, the shifts that have been happening here this week is I almost feel like my brain is trying to rewire itself to handle the paradigm shift that we're in the midst of and how um, and what and how the, how much that's evoking for you know for all of us and and where it's hitting in, in me in the different places and and how powerful it is and in some ways I feel in a very sort of fluid place a sort of liminal place almost where there's not a sort of I haven't got a real strategy or, or sense of where to respond from or how to respond tonight um, other than to really acknowledge that um, there's something very um, powerful that's happened and I feel very privileged to have actually been able to be here in America um, at this time and to, to witness and feel this process and the you know the um, election of uh, Barack Obama, which archetypally uh, holds so many, you know, holds a, um, a representation of a, perhaps for him, you know, personally represents as, as an archetype so many different facets of, the, of our one consciousness. Um, and I suppose having come from uh, having worked and lived for, for since '94, in South, you know, when South Africa went through its own transitions um, from the um, post-apartheid government, um, and uh, Mr. Mandela was elected, that was the moment that Kitty Soren arrived in South Africa, and it was both very euphoric and there was a lot of fear. You know, there was the light and the dark happening. Um, for some people, there was a, a very difficult and continues to be a very difficult transition to make. So transitions are very, I, I feel like my life is a lot about being in the midst of transitions of one sort or another, as all of our lives are, uh, I imagine. So, you know, they're, they're very powerful processes to be in the midst of. Um, and there's something about what's been happening here that has been very evocative for me of that sort of process that happened in South Africa and how the, when these when these archetypal paradigm shifts happen how it has such vast implications for for all of us and and it also evokes a lot of unknown territory because we don't quite know what does that translate into how do we ground that what does it mean for everyone um, it's been a it's a powerful time that we're in we we're just talking just now in the break uh, Eugene and I about all of the what's been happening financially and the stocks and and in our own American side of the family losing stocks you know just like that overnight after 
holding, you know, family stock for I don't know how many years. And so this is a, this experience of so much instability and change. And then being in South Africa this whole last year, we've had enormous political instability and changes. And we still don't know whether all of that going as the, the uh, ANC has been splitting and then uh, um, the Ash, uh, African National Congress who took over power, which is the, f the, was the, the party that was, uh, Mandela's party was the party that um, fought against in the struggle years against apartheid. Um, and has really been a dominant party in the political scene. So it was unthought of that they themselves would end up going through a process of split, which is happening. It's, it's very unstable. So there's this, this is incredible sense of things being um, very unstable and <coughs> shifting. And, um, and in the midst of all that, for me, always comes up the issue of, of um, how that affects one personally and how it's so tempting to try and find um, you know, a, a, a place where you can perhaps defend oneself against shifts and changes or one might embrace them and go with them if they go the way y you like them, that they, you, know, you appreciate the way it's going. But for me, it always brings up more profoundly a sense of where, where is a refuge? Where do I actually take refuge? And even when there's very, you know, f for me, what's happened in this, this country this week has felt very positive. I, I feel um, it's released an incredible amount of energy, and I feel that's, that's going to potentially be hopefully very positive and directed in, in a way to really respond to the enormous challenges we face globally. And I think it's brought home um, the, the extraordinary sense of a global community in a way that perhaps is more and more evident where we can't um, you know defend and hide ourselves against our in our particularity anymore but to have to more and more recognize the seamless world that we live in and how interconnected and interdependent that is and how fluid it is and how unstable it is and how there's this this enormous sense of a shift happening so for, for in the midst of that it's the the question remains you know where where is their stability where is their refuge where is where do we look to, to, to find a sense of balance um, in the midst of movement, whatever it evokes for us, you know, excitement, hope, joy, euphoria, or for some maybe the opposite, um, fear, worry, and that, and, and that can be very splitting, you know, whichever part of our particular relationship to that, to the processes that we're in, wherever we take our stand in that. I'm sorry if I'm not very coherent tonight. As I started the talk saying that um, <laughs> my brain is rewiring itself <laughs> along with America's brain. <laughs> um, yeah, so this, this uh, sense of um, the, the place where we live in South Africa is in the Uchtelschlamba mountain or the Drakensberg in Afrikaans. Draken is the dragon, Uchtelschlamba in Zulu means the barrier of spears. It's a very dramatic and elemental area for a mountain range. And the particular mountain that we, we, we live on where the hermitage is called Mvuleni, which means a place of opening, a place of rain. Um, the, that, the, those mountains are, are over, you know, million, over 20 million years old. So we're nestled in this ancient land that's untouched. It hasn't been inhabited, it hasn't been built on. 
when you go into the when you go into the mountain you can still feel the spirit of the Khorasan which were the original people of that area you can still see their paintings and I find it gives me great perspective when I sit there in the midst of the, all the changes that are happening and this you know how globally we're faced with so many very um, dramatic and power you know an increasing power of intensity in our times that we, 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 we can't we can't go into denial we can't hide behind our walls where we're faced to have to shift in our consciousness to acknowledge our interconnectedness our inseparability to respond for more unified consciousness to the challenges we're facing I find I take great refuge in the sense of the immovability of the mountains where we live the, the ancientness of the land and for me that resonates very much with the inner refuge uh, which isn't necessarily inner or outer as an, another another distinction, but ultimately the the refuge with of the heart, the unshakable heart that the, you know that that is immovable in the same way as the mountain where we live is immovable in the face of volcanic eruption, in the face of dinosaurs, in the face of it at once one time being an ocean and then another time being grasslands, another time being. You know, it's just all these geological shifts that the earth has taken, how ancient it is. And so this, this sense of where, you know, how as we let go of all the, the, the way, the, the, the place that creates distinctions, what creates in, in the way that the Buddha reflected on the primary place of what makes distinctions and where we generate this sense of separateness is through the processes of our thinking, through the conceptual mind, what the Buddha called papancha, the, the papancha, the conceptual proliferation of the, the, the mind that constantly designates the sense of self as different from other. You know, so as we start to see through the, the magic show of the process of papancha, uh, as we see that thought is, rather than a, an ultimate designation of some solid reality, is a is a, a temporary designation or description um, that's in the process of change and is porous as we look more deeply into the thought processes, the, the, the processes of the cognitive um, 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 designation of the world, the s- perceptions we have about self and other, um, the feeling tones, the, the memories, the, all that generates, how we generate consistently, how the mind is consistently generating the sense of time, what they call the mark of time, the mark of self, the mark of other, the mark of lifespan. When we start to know ourself as that, as that which can know uh, can know the thought but isn't the thought, can know the perception but it isn't the perception, when we're not identifying with these different ways of the, how we mark the world, how we designate the world through our thinking processes, then we start to get inducted or introduced into that which is just present, the heart in its immovability, the heart in its knowing nature. And it's in that knowingness, it's in that heart, it's in that presence that we start to intuit our indivisibility, the seamlessness of this universe, of this one world. And for me, I feel what's so exciting and so um, interesting about the time we're in is that we're being invited more deeply into that recognition. Um, 
I don't know where it will take us, but I, I feel it can only um, be a, a wonderful journey to, to continue to explore rooting ourselves in the immo- immovability of this one heart and to explore how that may express itself in response uh, to the pressing suffering and needs in the world around us. I'm giving this to you. <laughs> you might have something to... You know, when we were, when we were talking about Tanisha coming, she said she wanted to talk about the election. And, uh, and I, said, I said, that's great, but I want you to be careful. And I realized, if you, if you may have noticed, I don't talk about politics too much, really, here. Partly because um, I, I, I want this group to, uh, um, in some sense, be what you're talking about. Have the kind of inclusion that really includes everybody. And by that I mean, uh, Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, Green Party. And what I've found often by talking about politics is people can get put off very quickly if you take one side or another. And so it's a very tricky place for me personally to talk about as a Dharma teacher. but I'm. But I was uh, happy to hear Tanisha wanted to talk about politics and the election, and um, and I think for myself the piece that I'd like to add is the excitement I feel also about this possibility of a different paradigm for the country and the world that actually reflects the Dharma the dharma, as Tanisha is talking about, of inclusion, the dharma of uh, non-separateness, the dharma of the truth of our total interconnectedness. And whatever distinctions there are, which there are, there's distinction by gender, and there's distinction by race, and there's distinction by religion, and there's distinction by personality types, and there's distinction by states or by countries. All those distinctions have their place, but they're relative distinctions. They have their place, they have their time, they have their appropriateness, but the Dharma is, in addition to uh, being able to acknowledge the various distinctions, the Dharma sees to the depth. The Buddha perceived the Dharma, the truth of the way things are. And that truth is characterized by our lack of separateness, by our um, uh, worldly manifestation of Buddha nature, which is inherent, which is inherent with each being, with each person, whatever party you're in, 
whatever position you take. And even as we talk about this possibility of, uh, of paradigm shift or that there may be the, the, the ability to change the whole way we see ourselves in America as a people, where instead of this sense of competitive capitalism being the foundation for how we see ourselves as a people, Maybe we could see ourselves as a people that is founded in, that is rooted in generosity, compassion, caring for one another, and living our lives as if that's the higher truth, as if that's the more important value. At the same time, as we're talking about the sense of possibility, I think it's also important if we're going to talk about the election is to acknowledge the hurt or pain that people feel when what we hoped would happen didn't happen. Definitely in, in San Francisco, there's a lot of suffering, and really in the state and the country about Proposition 8 for many, many people the feeling that uh, one's civil rights are somehow up for a vote. It's very deep suffering to experience that. While at the same time, of course, for the African-American community and for really for all of us, the election of Barack Obama as even uh, Senator McCain and President Bush and Condoleezza Rice acknowledge that this is significant for the whole country and ultimately for the whole world. That we have the maturity that we could elect a person who doesn't look like the most, the majority of the Americans. Even though that's swiftly changing, we know that. But still, that we could have the maturity as a country to do that. And at the same time, there's other areas that are, we're still maturing as a country, as a people, as a, individuals. And so, just the last piece I'll say is about the non-splitting that Tanisara was pointing at which is how, how do we hold the Dharma perspective which is all-inclusive, which is no part left out, which is no body left out, nobody, not even the people we don't agree with. I, I, somebody sent me a, a, a photograph of some prayer flags on Mount Kailash. Did I send it on to you? I might have, I'll send it on to you. And it's these prayer flags that were, they were there last month. And they were up on Mount Kailash, and there are all these prayer flags. Mount Kailash is like the holiest mountain in Tibet that Tanisra is circumnambulated a couple years ago. And there was this one prayer flag, and then on the prayer flag you see Obama's picture <laughs> up there. And it's pretty cool. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful photo, and it's beautiful. But I have to say, my thought was, oh, it would be really great if President Bush's photo 
was up there also. He may need it more than <laughs> Senator Obama, you know. But it's, it's really, my point is that my first big insight in meditation practice was seeing that there, there's no us and them. There's no us and them. It's, it's just all us, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, <laughs> right? It's really like being married, and it's being married to everybody. It's all us. And that perspective, if we can bring that into the political arena, we can have our disagreements, but then we can, we can function at a whole nother level when we begin to see it's all us. I think it would be nice to open it up to see if there's any um, comments or questions that can, anything that may have, uh, Eugene or I may have said that might have evoked some response in you or anything you want us to explore more so we could have a kind of a dialogue. Gail? Well, this is a bit of a shift, so if you don't want to shift this way. That's fine. Uh, Shifts are in vogue at the moment. Okay, sure. Um, thanks, Gail. I will actually, before I say a little bit about that, um, if I can find my glasses, which I might not... <laughs> I'm getting to that stage of life where I need glasses to find the glasses. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, they're all... Sorry, they're in here. <laughs> um... I want to, I'm very inspired by uh, an article that Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote um, in terms of the relationship of practice to service. So if I could just read a few lines from his thoughts and then I'll respond more a little bit to what you were saying, asking. In Buddha, if Buddhism in the West becomes solely a means to pursue personal spiritual growth, I am apprehensive that it may evolve into a one-sided way and thus fulfill only half its potential. 
Attracting the affluent and the educated, it will provide a congenial home for the intellectual and cultural elite, but it will risk turning the quest for enlightenment into a private journey that in the face of immense suffering which daily hounds countless human lives can present only a resigned quietism. Okay. So I think that is a, a sort of a, a possible shadow side to, to our meditation centers and monasteries is that you know, one can uh, become very comfortable, or it's not a comfortable process to do the inner journey, but one can find a way of, of abdicating some responsibility to respond, that, you know, that this whole sense of how do we respond, how do we find the balance between... Um, finding our own health, our own well-being, our own awakening, and then recognizing from the place of a, of a seamless consciousness the need to respond. Um, and both, you know, both of those insights are really the compassion that responds is very, very rooted in the, in the insight of the, the emptying, the emptiness of of, um, of self and other, ultimately, which can allow then the sort of the balance between the two. So for me, that's, that's in a way the template for our work. You know, it's both, we do work to respond in the context we're in. We, when we came to South Africa, we didn't come with an idea that we're going to do a project. We responded to the context we're in. We came with the idea that we're practitioners. And whatever context we're in, whether we're in a monastery or whether we're in a center or whether we're in a society, we're using all of it as practice. And we found ourselves in a post-colonial, post-apartheid society um, in a rural area of KwaZulu-Natal, which, um, which was devastated in some ways by the legacy of what had gone before and laid the ground very much for the, the, the HIV-AIDS pandemic to come in and just, um, um, just create havoc within, within the local rural communities. So, you know, as Gail said, when we were here in 2000, we were talking about our experience and what was happening for us and how we were sort of struggling to try and find a way to respond. And then actually it was Gail that stood up and just said, can we help? And... I said, no, that'd be great. Um, and we talked about it. And I said, well, if you get all your guys to give $10 a month for a year, we'll be able to launch a project. And being America, it took you about a month to do that. <laughs> um, but it was great. It did mean that for, for a year we could um, sponsor a manager while that person um, figured out how to get um, seed funding, which happened. And then from there, we emerged the, the Wozemoya project. Um, Woza means to come, and Moya it means breath or spirit. So the Woza Moya project is now eight years old, and it's become very successful, and um, it has, it employs nearly 30 community care workers, and has four managers, and paralegal aid for people, and um, other kind of food security development processes that go that go on, and it's it's become a project that, um, that has become a template for other projects because it's, because it's been very success, successful in empowering the local community um, in, their, in their own development and education. We, we're surround, we are in an area where there's still, in spite of all of the... the, you know, the, the in a way, we've just come out... There's a, 
there's a there's a, a legacy of great denialism around the issue of HIV and AIDS um, in in South Africa, which was promoted actively by our recent president, Mr. Mbeki, who is no longer in power, of course, and the Manto Shabalaba, who was the health minister, who is also um, no longer in power in that position. So we've moved out of that place in some ways, and and we have now have a very proactive health minister, um, which is very positive. Um, what happened more recently for us we, um, is that we were um, asked by um, a local community if we could help in their area. It's uh, the community is called Umkwasheni. Umkwasheni. So I'm still getting used to the clicks and the in uh, in the Zulu language. Umkwasheni is on the Lesotho border, and it's very deeply impoverished, um, very you know impacted by by the pandemic, um, and the the um, the directors who will direct this Kupuka project. Kupuka was the name chosen by our local, one of our local very saintly women in the area, a, a nurse called uh, Sister. Um, Abigail Ntleko, and she she's just recently won the um, the um, sorry the, I'm a bit jet lagged so <laughs> my brain is <laughs> she's recently won the the uh, unsung hero award yeah so that comes out of I realise this part of the country I think the organisation the the wise giving organisation is based in Marin. Uh, which I didn't realize until Abigail, she came to the Hermitage one day, really excited and said, I've just won this award, you know, I was nominated, and I've, she's about 74 years old, she has this incredible life. She has about 70 kids that are AIDS orphans that she, in a home that she developed. She has 19, she never married, but she has 19 children that she herself has adopted and fostered. At the moment, she's looking after... Um, a, a really severely handicapped child that's um, that's positive, abandoned at birth, and so she's constantly got these sort of children hanging off her. She's a bit like a Kuan Yin, you know. So she came sort of over. And she said, "Look, I've I've won this. You know, I've got this." And her, she's never left South Africa. Um, so we've been getting. She's got herself a passport, and she's actually going to come here next April to receive this award and be give her have a blessing from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And the thing for her that she was the most focused on, I mean, it's exciting for her to travel, to come to America and all of that, but she said, I really want that blessing from His Holiness. You know, she's, she said, God, I hope he's still, you know, he, you know, is anything, you know, she heard he'd gone into hospital and she said, oh, I need this blessing. I said, no, no, he's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. So that's very exciting. So she's going to be our director, you know. Um, with this young man from the UK and his partner who's from Ireland. They're coming out and they're going to live at the Hermitage for a year or two. And together they're going to um, be the, the seed people for the project, the Kapuka project. Abigail chose the name Kapuka, which means rise up, you know, to, to take your power in your hands and rise up. Um, so we're excited about that. We're launching the project in February. We've the the Corsi, the local chief, has given the land for us to build on, and um, 
we've started the process of we'll start the process of interviewing people for community as you know the, the community will nominate people to become care workers and we'll go through the process first thing next year well actually it's already starting to to get a small team together and one of the core focuses of the project is you know commu- is training community care workers is education is access to ARVs and all of that but the, but actually the core focus will be um, looking at um, youth development and support, particularly around behavioural changes and issues of non-gender equality that's very um, problematic in the, in, the, in the way that the, the pandemic unfolds. You know, so we're looking more at that and looking more proactively at that. So... Oh, sorry. <laughs> Hi, thank you. Um, this is um, more a question about uh, global unity. Um, coming from a scientific background, um, I always learned there was somewhat of a uh, biological evolutionary um, advantage to discrimination starting from young age, uh, being able to discriminate from who's your parents, who's not, growing up, and having a very strong um, attraction towards working for unity. I'm wondering if you can, um, if whether you think there's a type of disjunction between this like evolutionary nature and our quest for global unity. Well, that's a small question. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to respond to that? Okay, this is the time when I hand over to you, Jean. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe I'll I'll try to repeat. Should I repeat the question? So it's basically, if um, I don't know your name, I can't remember. Jacqueline saying... uh, you know, from a biological perspective, the the uh, the way the organism works and functions and and evolves is through a kind of discrimination, and and uh, uh, like you know, knowing who your parents are as opposed to others is very important for the for the organism to function and grow and flourish. And how does that relate to the movement towards global unity? Some is that a decent enough? Way to say it for now. Yeah, I, I would just add that um, yeah. there seems to be that type of um, discrimination throughout the development of families and clans and right. villages. So the discrimination that keeps going, you know, families, clans, villages, you know, cities, nation states, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh-huh. Well, uh, you know, I think the the level, I think, what again, it's what level are we looking at? What level are we looking at? And I think that's a helpful level, a good level to look on the biological level, to look at how things evolve, look at the instinctual level of how we, how our instincts function, our, you know, the the, the survival instinct functions. But the question might be, is that the deepest instinct? Is survival the deepest instinct or not? 
and maybe we'd have a debate here, but what about the, you know, there's the, there's the drive for um, social contact, there's the drive for sexual mating, there's the drive for survival that's inherent, but I would suggest that there's the drive for enlightenment, that there's the drive for freedom, that there's the 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 uh, enlightenment drive or the or the drive towards realization, which all of those come in be ultimately in the service of. That when we start to lock into the movement towards realization, towards seeing the possibility for freedom, all those other drives come in the service of that rather than the other way around. That's a little bit how I would answer that question. Is that good enough for now? Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Who else? We'll, we'll go anywhere tonight. Whatever, you, whatever you got. <laughs> In the back. see things as both, you know, we see, we have um, the, the um, for America to elect um, someone that has a Kenyan father, a mother from Kansas, that went to school in Indonesia, that has an, um, a Barak, which is a Swahili name, Obama, which I think is a town in Japan, <laughs> and uh, Hussein as an you know, um, it's an he re- he's himself, but he represents he becomes a, a representation for many people and for many and actually it's, that's not necessarily you know an, an easy thing and it has its own dangers, but he he becomes a screen upon which people project and identify, and therefore he becomes bigger than himself. He becomes an archetype for everyone. And for America to elect such a representation, an archetype, it's a, he, the America's elected someone that represents a global person. You know, that the, the, the sort of the, you know, the, the, the sense of the, a, a, a white old, older bloke or a, an aging, <laughs> you know, like the, the, <laughs> Uh, is you know is the one that holds the power that has you know could maybe trace themselves back as one kind of um, ethnic line or cultural line or religious line you know that paradigm was blown apart and it speaks to those many people all of us really that are have all of the carry all of these mixtures of things that perhaps never quite fit into one box you know, so suddenly we have this permission almost. That's why I feel like this is enormous freeing of energy, this permission to see ourselves in this, you know, it's a shift of paradigm. It's a shift of, of um, it's a perceptual shift. It's, you know, to hold the highest office in the land and for many people seeing it as the highest office globally in a way, in, in a societal way. I mean, it's not necessarily in a transcendent way, to see that, you know, being held and validated on such a massive scale 
is, is enormous. You know, that's why I'm saying my brain is still kind of going, <laughs> because I feel the implications. I don't know what they are, but I feel that, that the immediate implication that's happened is there's something very healing has happened. And, and a lot of permission has happened in a certain way for, for people to, to feel empowered, you know. And just most immediately, you know, the obvious reaction within the African-American community or in Africa. You know, I've been, a, f- a few weeks ago, I was in a cafe in KwaZulu-Natal, sitting there, and the, the African waiters, you know, and they're looking, we were looking, because we don't have broadband where we are, we're out in the sticks, and we'd gone in to try and catch up to speed a bit with the process, and there's a wireless cafe in um, Underberg, <laughs> which is kind of in the middle of nowhere, really. And we're sitting there, and this young Zulu guys kind of, you know, they, they've, they have come up with, uh, you know, with the whole paradigm, if you like, of in uh, South Africa, it's only very recent times that we're moving out of the white master and the black servant paradigm, which was in, in, in legislated and was brutal, you know, and kept in place in very... So that, you know, so, for, so that might have changed politically, but, but on a deeper psychological level, the, as we know, that's a whole other level to, to bring about that sense of change. So to have this young Zulu waiter, and we're talking, and he's kind of looking at the screen, and he's looking at this guy, who's the same color as him, running for president of the United States of America, and he's like, you could just see him kind of going, you know... And so it's powerful. It's powerful. That's what I meant. Maybe one more. Yeah, I guess I have a, a follow-up question. I, I think that um, the way you describe it is kind of super eloquent, and it's just kind of hits, hits the mark of what happened in the paradigm shift. But um, a lot, you know, myself and you know, a lot of my friends and people in my community. You know, a lot of attachment and fear building about what this means. You know, there's this, you know, humongous archetype, which is, you know, he's a person, and um, and he's picking, uh, his, he's picking his cabinet and uh, getting very obsessed and attached to, to who gets in and who's out and, and and where can this energy go? And I guess, you know, it's um, something I've been able to relate to you know, when something good happens when I'm sitting and um, all of a sudden there's this, this pull you don't want it to go away you want to you see a shift and you know you want that calm and that insight to keep going and I'm wondering if either of you can you know kind of talk about uh, some good ways to, to handle this this great expectation and, and fear also of the um, mm-hmm. you know the worst happening you know which which mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. you know <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I know. Well. Huh? Yeah. Uh, I actually would like to hear what you're going to say, but I, I, yeah, it's unknown. It's powerful. And I've, I've, this is where I felt for me, when going back to what I was saying at the beginning, the importance of refuge. Where do we find the point of stability? You know, and to trust that. I trust that. You know, you, you know, ultimately, politics, ultimately, you know, these shifts, you know, when I think of that mountain to you know, 20 million years or 220 million, I can't, you know, sorry if my brain wasn't quite so jet-lagged, I would remember. <laughs> but the, the ancientness of the immovability 
um, for me, we have to put into context these shifts within a larger context. And so to hold ground, one needs to know how to shift between the two levels that Eugene was talking about earlier from the, the temporal context where things are moving um, and changing, but to keep recognizing in the stillness of the inner listening and the heart, we connect with something that's more immovable, more unchangeable. We connect with a sense of inner stability where we can get a perspective on the fear, on the expectation, on the idealism, on the projections, on the wishes, on the possibility that it all could turn to the opposite. Who knows? Who knows? We don't know. It's unknown. But we can know that the knowing of the unknown is the place where we take refuge, not in the hope that it will go a certain way. But that doesn't mean to say we relinquish the possibility that we can use our energy to direct and help things go in a positive way, but we also need to know that we can't control ultimately the outcome. That's the, anyway, that's kind of... I don't know, how do you think about that? Remember the question? And Mr. said, well, how do you think about that? I'm like, oh, I like the answer you just gave. <laughs> it's true, I did. That was good. <laughs> ditto? Uh, ditto, kind of ditto, but also, um, uh, I, um, to keep looking, to keep paying attention to what's invoked in you in terms of the archetype, I think is very helpful. Because as you say, projecting it all on the archetype, that's, a, that's an incredible burden. But to seeing that the archetype draws something out of us, and then to see what, what, you know, what, what would be skillful, what would be helpful, how can we contribute? I actually think the most, one of the most exciting possibilities that's here is our own contribution. You know, what, what kind of world do you want? And as Tanisra says, the more we root in the timeless, in the deathless, in the Buddha Dharma, the more that world will be a manifestation, the more we can orient our world from that understanding. And then, yes, let's act. Let's, let's change the whole world. Let's really make it a different place. Just like we're saying anything is possible, the worst could happen. That's true. But if that's true, it means the best could happen. And why not go for it? Really, why not? What else are we going to do with our lives? That's the American way. And it's true. It is. It's something that's something, you know, America for, for a young teenager kind of country has a certain bit of that, oh, we could do anything? Why not? Why not? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So we're going to have to stop. We're at 9 o'clock. I know we could go a long time, but a couple things before we stop. There are a few flyers out for the project, the Kapuka project. What we would like to do 
you know, we always mention Donna and how we ask for Donna for San Francisco Insight. And what happens to your Donna is that the rent gets paid and the programs get supported and San Francisco Insight makes a donation to the teachers who are here. And so as teachers, we would like to donate all our Donna, whatever is being offered to us, to this new project in South Africa tonight. And then the steering committee at San Francisco Insight could see if they want to also donate their Donna after the rent, which they might have a little influence on the steering committee, so <laughs> maybe they would be up for that. Anybody, is people here up for that? Yeah? Okay. Okay, so it means that really your Donna tonight will go for this new project. In addition, we'll be doing this fundraiser on January 10th. Yes. 10th. We'll be doing a number of different things. One of the things we're doing, for those of you who may like to ride your bikes, we want to do a little bike ride to raise money. We're going to do it that morning. So it's not set up yet, but it'll be on the web and we'll have some flyers out soon. We'll do a simple bike ride to raise money for the Kapuka project. And, you know, the one other piece that some of you may know, but some may not, is um, we're going to visit. Uh, Pamela and I are going to visit Kitty Sarah and Tanisra in South Africa uh, at the beginning of February. So we'll be there to help launch the program. We're going to come, we're going to be part of the launch of the program, which really means you're going to be part of the launch of the program, that we go as part of you. So please, in whatever way you can, if you're so moved, please support the new project. And we'll sit for a moment and have a sharing of merit. Do you want to do the sharing of merit? As we finish our evening tonight, remembering this one heart within which all beings rest, may we share the blessings of our practice, the blessings of our life, for the welfare of all, for the welfare of this country, all the people here, all the beings here, for the welfare of all beings in this whole world. May all beings be free from suffering. May their hearts be at ease. And may they realize the awakened hearts. Just finishing with uh, the mantra, Om Mani Padme Hum, allowing the sound to resonate out and touch all of the realms of existence with this wish for well-being, for peace, for freedom of suffering. Oh. Uh-huh.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.